I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. For many critics and fans, Superchunk was the paradigm of indie rock in the 90s, and 20 years later, they're still going strong. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Superchunk performs live in the studio, and later Jim and I review the new album by the Decemberists. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. My funny valentine Sweet comic valentine You make me smile with my That is Chet Baker, the late great jazz trumpeter and occasional vocalist. His estate led a class action lawsuit representing Canadian artists against the four major record labels, Warner Music, Sony, EMI, and Universal, claiming unpaid royalties for recordings. This case was recently settled in Canada for $45 million in favor of those artists. The gist of the suit was that the Baker estate recognized that a lot of Chet Baker's music had been put on various compilation CDs over the last three decades, dating back to the early 80s. Artists in general in Canada, 300,000 songs had been used on these compilation CDs. And the record companies had said, okay, we owe the artist we've taken this track from a certain amount of royalties. We're going to put this in a quote-unquote pending list to be paid later. Well, the Baker Estate noticed, you know, we've been doing this for decades now. We haven't seen a penny from these compilation CDs. It's time to pay up. So they filed suit against the record companies representing artists who had similarly been taken down the road and, and not paid. And they were looking at damages of $6 billion. Well, I think wow. the record industry recognized, hey, wait a minute. Uh, let's just see if we can settle this thing out of court. That's exactly what happened. Far reduced damages, $45 million, but still a significant total for those 300,000 songs. And here's the great irony in this, Jim. As we well know, for the better part of the last decade, the record industry has been going after consumers, after websites for infringing its artists' copyright. Now they're found guilty of doing the same thing for the last three decades. Well, yeah, and I love this pending argument, Yeah, right? An alleged illegal downloader could well say, I downloaded this song for free, it's true, (laughs) but I was going to pay for it pending whether it was any good or not. (laughs) Right, right. Breathing fire, sparks flying from the Frankenstein machine, fantastic costuming and makeup are the visually identifiable features of the phenomenal group KISS. In a relatively short time, this group on Neil Bogart's Casablanca and Filmworks label is one of the hottest bands in the country. Tonight we have this exclusive presentation of this performance by KISS. In the morning I raise my head And I'm thinking of days gone by 
Oh, Greg, that takes me back. <laughs> the year is 1977, and the that. voice is that of Don Kirshner, introducing Kiss on Don Kirshner's rock concert. Don Kirshner is dead at the age of 76. We thought we had to pay tribute to him because you and I really grew up in the age where Don Kirshner was our Ed Sullivan. He was it. He was the man. You wanted to see rock and roll on TV in the years from 73 to 82. You watched Don Kirshner's rock concert, and he put them all on television. Leonard Skinner, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, David Bowie, Ted Nugent, Kiss, as we just heard, Stiff as a board, right? <laughs> in this leisure suit every week, but putting great music on, live on stage, often filmed in arenas and clubs, doing their thing. It was a great tradition. Kirshner had a wonderful career in the music business. He had been a publisher in the Brill Building, not writing the songs, but nurturing songwriting teams like Carol King and Jerry Goffin to do their best work. The Locomotion, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, having a hand in all of those great hits in the 50s and the 60s. Of course, in the 60s, went on to come up with this idea. Those guys from Liverpool, they've had a lot of success with that movie, A Hard Day's Night, <laughs> running around, having so much fun together, right? What if we put a band together, put them on television, and The Monkees was born? Now, the Monkees decided at some point, we're not just TV actors. You know, we're a real band. They started to be a pain in the neck, so Kirshner went one better. He decided the nice thing about a cartoon band would be that they couldn't talk back to me. <laughs> so he was the man who put the Archies on TV. You get later into the 70s, the networks came to Kirshner and said, would you do an Ed Sullivan-type show, just about music, though, for this new generation. And Don Kirshner's rock concert ran from 1973 to 1982. Kids, there was a time when <laughs> rock bands were not ubiquitous on television, could not be found on YouTube. There was no YouTube. And staying up late to watch the Midnight Special and Don Kirshner's rock concert was as good as it got. And that, I think, is worth remembering. Here to pay tribute to Don Kirshner, who died in Florida at the age of 76, is a Blue Oyster cult song called The Marshall Plan from that wonderful album Cultosaurus Erectus. Kirshner's voice is sampled from the rock concert TV show, introducing a fictitious character that Blue Oyster Cult has written this tune about. Here it is on Sound Opinions. It's gonna sound like, it's gonna sound like And tonight on Don Kirshner's rock concert, a new phenomenon in the music world, with six million albums to its credit in just two short years, my good friend, here's Johnny.
That's Marshall Plan by the Blue Oyster Cult in tribute to Don Kirshner, dead at the age of 76. listening to Sound Opinions, and up next is our conversation with the members of Super Chunk. Since they came together in 1989, the North Carolina band has helped establish the DIY model, and they're a good argument for being responsible for everything we know today as indie rock. We just heard a little bit of their first single, Slack Mother Expletive, which was released on Merge Records, the label founded by Super Chunk bassist Laura Balance and guitarist Mac McCon. Superchunk continues to call Merge home. Laura and Mac continue to run the label, and they're putting out records by the likes of the Arcade Fire, Spoon, and our recent guest, Teenage Fan Club. Along with drummer John Worster and guitarist Jim Wilbur, Superchunk is once again going strong, full of youthful exuberance and that wonderful pop-punk sound that we heard on their ninth and latest release, Majesty Shredding. We've been longtime fans, Greg and I, and it was with a lot of enthusiasm that we sat down with Super Chunk recently for a conversation and a live performance. Welcome, Super Chunk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the beginnings of the band for people who don't know. There was this amazing sense of regionalism in the 80s where bands and scenes popping up all over the country. It used to be that if you weren't in New York or Nashville or London or L.A., it was very difficult to start a band. And here you guys are in these little enclaves in North Carolina forming the scene. And talking to you before, Mac and Lawrence specifically, about this, uh, you said there was some inspiration within your area there to form a band. There was already a scene before you guys got there. I mean, I think there was a couple parallel scenes that were happening. Uh, there was a hardcore scene that seemed mainly based in, in Raleigh, and there were bands that were putting out their own records and cassettes and things like that. And then in Chapel Hill and Durham and Raleigh, there was also clubs and college radio stations and great record stores that were supporting, I guess, what would now be called alternative. There wasn't really a name for it back then, but you know, a band like the Meat Puppets or the Replacements or Sonic Youth would come through and play clubs in town. And so both of those things fostered what became the scene that we came out of. So I think that there was evidence everywhere of that you could be in a band and make records and, and make good music regardless of the size of the town. And right away you started putting out records yourself. I mean, it was kind of like, we don't have to go to the man, we don't have to go to a record company. You basically started Merge Records to put out Super Chunk Records. Is that basically how it worked? Mac had already been in a number of bands and had sort of a pileup of recordings that he um, had acquired over the years. I mean, the first thing we put out was the Bricks cassette. Then we put out a chunk single before we changed our name to Super Chunk. Right, right. Um, and also, and then started doing Seven Inches with uh, other local bands. Did you even try to go to another label or say, "Hey, put put out our stuff," or was it always the idea that, "Hey, we can do this ourselves. We've seen other people do it." There, there weren't any labels to consider for that. Mm-hmm. You know, like our band just started and we have two songs. Yeah. Who would want to do anything with that? 
and we soon started talking to Gerard Cosley, who at the time was still at Homestead, and went on to start Matador, obviously, with Chris Lombardi. And so once we'd done a couple singles on Merge, we ended up on Matador to do full-length albums because our the scope of our resources and our ambitions was really just to do like singles and stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we couldn't really afford to even press an album's worth of CDs and LPs and cassettes, which you had to do all three at that time. What was the aesthetic from the beginning with Superchunk? Because if there's a through line from 1989 through to today, it's you guys have never been easily pigeonholed. And that, that was really important in the 80s. You were really, you know, hardcore punk like, like Husker Du with the Minutemen. And in the 90s, you were grunge or you were kind of shoegaze. You guys have never been anything easy to throw on you. Well, thank you. Mm. I mean, I, I, but I think that you know the bands that you mention are a big inspiration. Bands like Who's Screwed and the Minutemen, because you say they're hardcore bands, and they were certainly that's where they fell in terms of you know if you're going to see the Minutemen, you're probably going to a hardcore show. But you know, Who's Screwed was also a real pop band, and mm-hmm. the Minutemen embraced all kinds of styles. I mean, it didn't sound really like any other hardcore band. And I think that I don't think when we started that we decided to have a certain style. It was just kind of playing music that was fun for us to play and that we enjoyed listening to also. On that note, how about some uh, music from Superchunk? What are you going to play for us? We're going to play a song from our new record, and the song is called Crossed Wires. Tell 
That was Crossed Wires, performed live by Superchunk on Sound Opinions. Greg and I will talk more with the indie rockers in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, I'll add a song I can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My co-host is Jim DeRogatis, and you've been listening to our session with Super Chunk. That's a song from their second full-length in 1991, No Pocky for Kitty, which was recorded here in Chicago with engineer Steve Albini. Now, that album was released to a lot of acclaim, and it was during this time that the personnel in the band started to change into the current lineup we know today, with Laura Balance and Mac McCon being joined by guitarist Jim Wilbur and drummer John Worcester. We're going to pick up our conversation here with Jim Wilbur explaining how he joined the band. I knew these guys in college, and the original guitar player, he just didn't really want to pursue it. And so they, I got a call, and it was just like, we're going to go do this tour. And I was supposed to be a teacher in Connecticut, but I was not finding a job for a long series of reasons but I, I said I'd come down for three months and we went on tour and I just never never three left. months just stretched into two so, so Jim Wilbur could have been teacher <laughs> we'd be like are we going to tour this year or is Jim going to be teaching and get out <laughs> thankfully you never had to go to Vietnam yeah, though no. No. <laughs> John Worcester on drums when did you uh, join Super Chuck I joined in uh, early October of 91 right out of high school I ended up joining a, a, a band I grew up near Philadelphia, but I joined a band in Winston-Salem 
and we ended up getting signed by Clive Davis to Arista Records oh a, cu- a couple <laughs> months later. And, and oddly enough, one of the co-founders is Steve Dubner, who co-wrote Freakonomics. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up moving up to New Jersey for some dumb reason to be a band up there in a house. And I, I, I would see – I would <laughs> a house band. Like the monkeys. And I would see Mac every now and then at shows at Maxwell's and places like that. And then I uh, moved back to North Carolina and I moved to Chapel Hill and I got a job as a window washer. And I would wash the windows of the record store that Mac worked at. <laughs> uh-huh. And they were having problems with their then drummer. And he said, uh, would you want to do it? And I said, no. <laughs> no, I said, I, said, <laughs> I said, no way. Uh. 91 being an important year in the history of rock, you just figured you were going to strike it rich in this rock and roll thing, right? Still waiting, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll have to caution it's listeners. Right around the corner. That's right. We, I must caution listeners that they should believe perhaps a third of anything that John Worcester says, because he is also a comedian awesome. with Tom Sharpling. Longtime show you guys have done on, on WFMU in New Jersey. That's correct. And one of the most brilliant rock and roll scams ever. Greg didn't know about this, John, the other day. But, you know, the entire buy it, burn it, trash it, sound opinions rating system. You're not going to say we ripped him off, are no, you? No, I'm going to say it's inferior oh, okay. to the one that John <laughs> came up with, the rock, rot, and rule. Can you just talk briefly about what rock, rot, and rule was? Well, as you said, my, my friend Tom has a radio show on WFMU called The Best Show on WFMU, and I've been calling in as these characters for the last 12 years or so. The first one we ever did was I called in as the author of a uh, fictitious rock reference book called Rock, Rot, and Rule. And the the bit was that this guy, he would just list bands and just say whether or not they rocked, rot, or ruled and with no rhyme or reason as to why. And then people would call in believing it was real and they would <laughs> just be astounded and so angry. like one, Furious. One of, yes. Furious. One of the things was that, that madness ruled because they invented ska. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. WFMU, you're on the air with Ronald Thomas Klontel. Hi, Ronald Thomas Klontel. Klontel. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, too. Uh, Madness hardly invented ska. Ska goes back to the early 60s, I believe, from Jamaica, London. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. I think you're, you have a lack of rock history, dude. You don't even know Neil Young prior to 1989? No. And you're writing a book? Yes. Uh, you you rot. Whoa, that hurts. Is he a funny guy in the van? The rest of Super Chunks? He just crack you up all the time? Or you he cracks throw himself him out? up. Yeah, I'm always <laughs> laughing at my own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may explain the longevity. That's a pretty remarkable run. Four people being together for 20 years. It's like being married to three other people at the same time. That's almost impossible to pull off. You can understand it at the U2 level, okay? Those guys are all multi-billionaires, so... I'll put up with these other three people for a while they longer. They probably don't have to be around each other much. They never sit That's, in a van, I guarantee. Right. Mm. So what is the reality of that, Laura, since you do bring that up? Um, <laughs> we each have our own bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, she like, won't mention like that. We, we, when we started this tour, when we started touring for this record in September, when I first got in the van... The first thing I said was, I can't believe I'm on tour again. Mm-hmm. I'm on tour. I'm on tour. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but it's really, you, you got to keep laughing, and you got to know when to hold your tongue. You yep. know, don't, always, don't say what you're thinking. <laughs> you, you haven't mastered that part No, I yet. haven't. I'm terrible at it. But no, actually, Jim, you don't know how much I'm holding back. 
I can only imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. And here we are, 20 years later, you've got a new album, Majesty Shredding. Are we going to hear another track from that, or what's what's next for you? We're going to mix it up a little bit and do a song from an older record. Uh, That's a record we made here in Chicago at Electrical Audio Recording Studios. It's a song called Hello Hawk. Everyone, when you come high into view, 
Hello, Hawk from Super Chunk on Sound Opinions. We're here with Mac McCon, Laura Balance, John Worcester, Jim Wilbur. That was uh, from a string of albums that you guys released in almost consecutive years through the 90s. There was, a, I think, eight albums in about 10, 11 years there. Incredibly prolific, not to mention numerous B-sides and rarities for other compilations. Resolutely indie. I mean, people would talk about you guys, well, never selling out to the man. Offers from major labels that they turned down and walked away from. <laughs> well, there was that Aqua yeah. Teen Hunger Force yeah. song. There was also the Jerky Boys, Jerky Boys on, Boys, on Atlantic Records. Jerky Boys, yeah, Jerky Boys. Right. You went through that whole period where you almost had immediate recognition for those early singles. Looking back on that period... Was it a great time for music? Was it a case where the music that you came out of, that indie scene of the 80s, got co-opted and got diluted? What's your perspective on on that decade? I mean, I feel like it it was a great time for music, and some of my favorite bands from that time period were on major labels for parts of their career, a band like Unrest or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it didn't seem to change the way that they sounded. It never seemed to really work out in the end, for bands not named Sonic Youth, you know? Yeah. But I guess even at the time, though there, that certainly was a topic of conversation, I don't think that I, I ever thought about the music in that sense of like, oh, this band is good because they're doing this or this band is bad. But there was just a ton of bands and a ton of great bands, and we got to tour with a, a lot of them. I also feel like when we started, it was much easier. There was, there was less of a, a sea of bands, so it mm-hmm. was easier to get attention then than it would be if I think if we formed as a as a band now, it would be a much more of a struggle. Mm-hmm. And the than other it thing was then it, it wasn't like an ideological indie, you know, like integrity. It was like business decision. It just made sense for us because we our machine made enough money that we didn't have to have other jobs, and so it seemed to work. It's an interesting point, Jim, and I'm just wondering how that affected the music and the art because it seemed like if a label had signed you based on a song like Slack Mother, you know, mm-hmm. and, and said, wow, we want that sound, and you guys never really gave it back to them. It was like every album was different, and I think even within your fan base, there was like, well, you know, these guys, what are they doing here? They're kind of, it's on, they're a little more pr- progressive elements. We heard a little bit of that in Hello Hawk. I mean, that's a very different sounding song than maybe some of your earlier singles were. Do you feel that part of it was just giving you the freedom to go wherever you wanted yeah, I think I think so, and and just hearing stories from other people who had had a different experience, and knowing that we could just do whatever we wanted was a very freeing thing. I think you know. And John had had that experience with his band. He had he had been on a major label already, so right. he was yeah. he was mm. on he was I, on. The, I was familiar with the massive ocean of red tape that you had to go through just to even do anything. We didn't Wonderful. name that band that was a favorite of Clive Davis earlier, John. We, I don't even know if he, if he remembered us after he signed us. Uh, <laughs> of course he did. It no. was Whitney Houston, <laughs> it was, right. and then you guys. That's right, that's right. And then the church. The band was called The Right Profile. We never even finished our record. We, we did half a record with Jim Dickinson. Did it rock, rot, or rule? I have not heard it in so long that I'm going to say... It rocked. It, it rocked. It rocked a little bit. Come on. So the record it actually didn't rock. It, it, it actually never came out. It didn't. No. Wow. Well, that, that seems to be the story See, of a lot. That's of that. the kind of story. I know. It slows yeah. you down. Yeah. <laughs> it slows you down. Yeah. And you guys did not slow down until 2001. Here's to shutting up. I love the irony of that album title. Now, did you know then that it, there was going to be this uh, hiatus, Laura? I mean, was it kind of like in the cards that this was going to happen? You know. No. I don't think it was. No. no, I had no idea. That's funny because people did say that about the title, like, 
oh, what is it? You know, mm-hmm. does that mean it's their last track? And we're like, give me a break. It's just a title. You know, it's a lyric. You know, and then sure enough, they were right. We did stop doing anything after that. Uh-huh. It was basically a nine-year drought for people who'd been used to a record a year. Yeah, we did slow it down to that, to pretty much what you just described. We do a few shows a year and a couple songs here and there. But I think really touring is what everyone was really burned out on mm-hmm. at the end of that, the touring for that record. Yeah, that, that record came out at an unfortunate time. That is to say, one yeah, week after 9-11. One week after 9-11. Yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We are here in the studio with Super Chunk, and will you guys give us another song? We're going to play, this is a song from our new record, and it's called Digging for Something. Mm.
Superchunk digging for something from the Majesty Shredding album on Sound Opinions. Thank you for uh, coming by. Thanks for having me. Thank you. To listen to Superchunk's complete live performance and watch video of the band in the studio, visit soundopinions.org. To comment on Superchunk or share any of your rock and roll thoughts, call 888-859-1800. When we come back on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, the Decemberists are going to tell us the king is dead. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis, and you're listening to the latest album from the Decemberists, The King is Dead, with a track called Calamity Song. If that sounds a little bit like R.E.M., it should, because Peter Buck, the guitarist in R.E.M., is actually guesting on that track, a very intentional tribute to one of the Decemberists' favorite bands. This Portland outfit has been around for nearly a decade, shaped around the songwriting of Colin Malloy, a Montana native, with just a little bit, what do you think, Jim, a little theatricality, a little bit of a thespian in him, as well as a hyper-literate would-be novelist, as well as a musician and songwriter? He was an English major, <laughs> and there's no hiding that. The man is the king of the $10 word. He drops a lot of them into his songs, and also very ambitious in terms of the sweep of his songwriting. They started out on the indie Kill Rock Stars label, and then things started to really shift into a more ambitious vein with a five-part epic EP called The Tain in 2004. Lengthy tracks involving an 8th century Irish poem that Malloy was reinterpreting. Mm -hmm. He got even more ambitious after that. He signed to a major label, Capitol Records, in 2006. The band got a little bit more hard-rocking, started to approach some progressive rock type of territory. The Crane Wife in 2006 had a multi-part suite at its center. And then Malloy went whole hog in 2009 with a rock opera, The Hazards of Love. Now the band is back for its sixth album, and there is a definite shift 
in approach. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's hear a track from it first. It's called This Is Why We Fight from the Decembrists from The King Is Dead on Sound Opinions. Come the war Come the This is why we fight by the Decemberists from their sixth album, The King is Dead. Greg, you know, some people, I think, were a little bit tired of the Decemberists and their increasingly ambitious progressive rock. I loved it. Yet I think that they're really an important band and and there's more to them than a kind of modern indie hipster take on Jethro Tull. This is the album where they silence the critics and show that, you know, it's always been about the songwriting. It's always been about the power of the music. I think a lot of the filigree has been taken away in this album, and they're paring down to a more Americana, roots rock, folk rock sound. Malloy, when we've had the Decembrists in, when we've had him solo in, goes on and on and on about obscure early 60s English folk artists, folk mm-hmm. rock artists. You know, he's not just referencing Fairport Convention, right? 
But let's remember that there were also sounds like that in America with groups like The Birds or Love, and that REM updated those sounds wonderfully in the 80s and early 90s. Now the Decemberists, I think, by uh, referencing those sounds and bringing in Peter Buck and also Gillian Welch to do some vocals, they're saying, we're here to do this for the new millennium. And I, I just love this album on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale of sound opinions. This is a very enthusiastic buy it. Yes, Jim, I agree. I think that the Decembers had been perceived as being maybe a little bit too pretentious. Maybe they jumped the shark a bit with that last album. Like you, I, I love that stuff. But I could see where fans were starting to tire of that approach. This is a much simpler album. It's, in fact, one of the most straightforward records they have ever made. It's about short songs, three, four minutes long, very direct lyrics. Instead of $10 words, you know, Colin Malloy's dropping down to, like, you know, the $5 range well, on 750, this record. $7.50, 750 yeah. And also you've got the, the emphasis on uh, the harmonica and the accordion and the pedal steel guitar, much more of a twang, countryish folk factor in this record. Absolutely a necessary album for this band to make. I think they needed a little bit of a palate cleanser, and at the same time, kind of a very modest grower. It's the kind of album that people are going to put on five, ten years from now and say, those are some really solid songs. A great step in the right direction for the December. So I agree with you. It's a buy-it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the desert island jukebox to play a song we cannot live without. And this week it is Jim DeRogatis' turn. Thank you for that introduction, Greg. And I tell you, I really need a trip to the desert island this week. The only thing worse in life than moving is moving in Chicago in January. This is a Desert Island jukebox spiel that's more about me, by the way, than than the band I'm about to play. And as you know, you really know, because your basement is insane, a lot of stuff comes with this job of rock critic, right? I mean... I had 50 boxes just of books, and then let's not even talk about the CDs or the boxes of LPs or the boxes of cassettes. I still had, like, numerous boxes of cassettes to move. So the last seven years in this other place, I did not have room for my turntable. And round about the third day of unpacking, I came across the turntable, and we have a place now in the living room for the stereo, and I set up the turntable again. Now, I am not as geeky about the audio stuff as you, and you aren't as geeky as some people. I mean, we have to listen in the car. We have to listen in the boombox in the bathroom. We listen on the computer. We're just always listening to music, right? So you can't be too audiophile about it. But I got to set up my stereo the right way again. I got to set up my turntable. I got to, you know, tweak the anti-skating device and make sure <laughs> the thing was level. And I and I, I went into the boxes of LPs. I was aiming for Neil Young. Traditionally, when I moved, Tonight's the Night was always the first album I played. But I hit the wrong box. I was in the R box. But here was Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones. And it stuck out because, you know, you had to put the cardboard in the right place in that album because it's got the zipper cover that Andy Mm -hmm. Warhol designed. And if you own vinyl and you own that album, you know you always had to, like, put a pad there because it was going to mark up the album in front of it with the (laughs) zipper. So I pull out Sticky Fingers, and the needle goes down, and there it was. Brown Sugar kicks off track one, side one. 
all is right with the world, we go into Sway, and that's my favorite song. That demon life has got me in its Sway. I'm finally feeling right with the world. And then the needle gets stuck on that part where Jagger goes, hey, 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 hey. I didn't even care. And I just let it kept going. Hey, 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 hey. Sounded so wonderful. Everything was great. I love vinyl. I'm so glad to have my turntable back. Here are the Rolling Stones with Sway on Sound Opinions. is the Rolling Stones with Sway on Sound Opinions, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. What do we have next week on Sound Opinions, Craig? Next week, we look back at the 20th anniversary of a landmark year in rock, 1991. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Super Chunk was recorded by Mary Gaffney. Our own producers, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, are this show's Mac McCon and Laura Balance. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, on the Rock Rotten Rule scale, he rules. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm in the phone with this one Hi, my name is Jacob Greenlaw. I live on the coast of Maine on an island called North Haven, and I listen to your podcast every week. 
my band are big fans and we listen to you guys while we're driving or on a tour all the time. Just wanted to thank you for your recent Teenage Fan Club episode. I had never heard them before and now I am a huge fan. And just wanted to thank you for introducing me to bands like The Nerves and Green and so many others that I can't think of at the moment. But because of you guys, I, I've been introduced to a lot of great music. Also a lot of bad music, but I'll forget about that for now. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. Rhonda here from Chicago. I often listen to your show, even though you're frequently wrong. Case in point, Jim raking on Corinne Bailey right tonight. Um, she is a soul singer with Grit, and it seems as though Grit to you means being crass, like Adele. I know she's young. She's subject to the crassness of youth. And Amy, and Amy's just an addict, for better or worse. I felt that she was going through on the sea. It has substance, and just because an artist isn't beating you over the head by being crass or having a heroin meltdown does not mean that they are not a genuine soul singer. I think that you should be fair. Thanks. Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Is why she said to me. Hey gang, this is Lloyd. I'm in Brownsville. I love the Dan Charnas interview, you know, the history of the business of hip-hop. It's like a neglected story. What got my blood moving, though, was the review of Corrine Bailey Ray, especially the part dealing with Kay Seurat. This was a total rip-off of Sly and the Family Stone. Frankly, Sly should get a ranging credit for that because it's all about his arrangement. He transformed Doris Day, which was and is a minor miracle. Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Basically, except for overpraising her review of the Sly ripoff. Other than that, I thought Greg's review was spot on. And I agree that when Greg pointed out that Jim was, was just a little too harsh and got me thinking, you know, why why so harsh, Jim? You know, what struck me was that both of y'all pretty much accused Corrine Bailey Ray of being inauthentic. And I don't get that. Corrine Bailey Ray may not be my cup of tea, but she's just as authentic as the electric wizard I mean, that, that may be more of a social scientific distinction than an aesthetic one, but it's an important distinction and right in line with the point your guest Dan Charnas was making, because hip-hop isn't necessarily less authentically potent now that it's mainstream, right? So I went on too long, but like I said, you got my blood going. So great job, you guys. Keep rocking the free world.
messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.